This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. The back and forth by the White House over the trade deficit that the United States has with China has seen each country announce products that will be taxed at higher rates. The United States focused on Chinese electronics, pieces of aerospace technology, and machinery goods. China focused on a variety of products, including soy, cars, and chemicals. So what do these announcements mean? Will we see the tariffs imposed, or is this meant to get to the negotiating table and get something done there? We asked that question and others of Jacques Delisle, professor of law and professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as director of the Center for East Asian Studies, and also of Matt Gold, who's an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University and a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. Gentlemen, as always, great to have you on the show with us. Thank you for your time. Great to be here. Thanks. Good to be back. Thank you. Matt, in, in hearing some of the products involved in these, in these tariffs, what's been your reaction? Uh, It's not unexpected. Um, The trick to this is to try to maximize the impact on China, minimize the impact on the United States, um, because, of course, there's a negative impact on both sides when you put up trade barriers like this. Jacques, what's been your reaction? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think what you're seeing is each side trying to get uh, maximum leverage. So China has targeted uh, things that will inflict some political pain in the U.S., especially for Republicans in the Trump administration. That's the point of soybeans uh, and other agricultural products. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, has said that its policy is based on an attempt to sort out those areas where uh, the tariffs imposed on Chinese goods will hit China where it hurts. So, yes, that's definitely the way this game is played. But part of this, Matt, is also the concerns that uh, a lot of U.S. businesses have, ones that that want to do business in China, over intellectual property and the rules surrounding being involved in China and the intellectual property that you may be bringing to that country. That's correct. Um, China blocks, well, it puts up restrictions on the ability of Americans to export goods and services to China's markets, and the way its restrictions work open the door for Chinese industry and the Chinese government to steal our intellectual property rights, our know-how, and other parts of our intellectual property rights. And this is a retaliation. The U.S. is entitled to retaliate when China does something like that because China's actions violate its WTO obligations to us. But, of course, as I've said before, Dan, we're required to retaliate through the WTO process. Uh, and it's yeah. still not clear whether we're going to be inside of that process or outside of that process. What, what do you need to see, to, or I guess say, what needs to be revealed to be able to find out if we actually are in that, within those, uh, those realms? That's a great question. The first step of the WTO process is consultations where the two countries get together and talk about it and try to... Uh, work the issue out. And of course, the United States and China are doing exactly that. So technically, right now, we are in the WTO process, but the Trump administration has also said that it's going to impose those tariffs if the consultations are unsuccessful uh, fairly soon within a matter of months. And if that were to happen, we'd be outside the process because the way the WTO process works is that if consultations fail, then 
we have to litigate before a WTO panel, which would take a year, and then the decision of that panel would be probably appealed to the WTO appellate body, which would take another year, and then China would be given time to, to correct its practices, and when it fails, we would have to go back yet again to the WTO appellate body and get approval for the particular <laughs> sanctions we want, which is up to about a four-year process. Uh, Jacques, going back to something I said a moment ago, and with your expertise uh, surrounding Asia, uh, the, the issues surrounding intellectual property, and we've touched on it with you uh, in the past, uh, how significant are, they, are those issues seen by U.S. companies right now, especially the ones that you speak with? Well, it's certainly the big concern. I mean, uh, one of the bits of confusion here is that the Trump administration hasn't been terribly clear about its priorities. So much of the talk we've heard is about intellectual property loss, and that is a huge concern uh, to the relatively cutting-edge U.S. industries. And it runs the gamut from outright of intellectual property theft, sort of industrial espionage, hacking and getting information, to people who work with U.S. companies that have IP present in China, and they walk out the door with that IP, uh, to uh, the thing that has become a focus increasingly recently, which is a coerced transfer. That is, the cost of doing business and getting access to Chinese markets is that you agree to transfer your IP. So all these things are part of the cluster. That's been one of the focus points of the Trump administration, indeed the focus of the threat to bring WTO action. But it's bundled in with this rather archaic concern about bilateral trade deficits in manufactured goods, which don't really tell you very much, and concerns about Chinese acquisitions of assets in the U.S., some of which are IP-targeted, but not all of which are. We're talking with Jacques Delisle of the University of Pennsylvania, Matt Gold of Fordham University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, Matt, playing off of something Jacques just said, uh, this focus on the trade deficit and, and the, the, the impact back and forth between China and the United States, that is, as Jacques mentioned, is obviously something that President Trump is very focused on right now. Uh, is it strictly really the number or is there something else that that is inside of this that really is driving the, the push by President Trump to try and tackle these the, these high deficit numbers that, that he uh, quotes all the time? Well, President Trump himself personally, in my view, is, is really just focused on his base, focused on their desire to blame uh, all of their problems on some external boogeyman, uh, and so they blame it on trade. Uh, the next step is trade deficits or trade balance in the broader sense. I think that's a focus of Peter Navarro, um, one of Trump's lead trade economists, his lead, lead trade economist. Um, and Trump has sort of adopted this trade deficit or trade balance obsession from Peter Navarro. Um, it really doesn't tell you much uh, about trade. Uh, that is a very much a correct observation. It, it, trade balance, having a trade deficit is not necessarily bad. And on top of that, trade agreements themselves don't have a big impact on trade balance. And on top of that, the degree to which you can improve a trade agreement has it, it, just the tiniest impact on that. So that's, that's that whole conversation. On top of everything else, it, president is limited in his ability to just impose new trade barriers left and right. He can only do it in certain situations. But when another country is violating trade agreements obligations to us, that creates one of those five situations where the president can just step in and add new trade barriers, which is why he seized upon the China situation, because China does 
um, very significantly violate trade obligations to the United States. It's the only country that does it to anywhere near as significant a degree as China does. And there's real value uh, in getting China to stop doing that, obviously. Whether this road will achieve that is arguable, but the idea that the United States you know, is absolutely justified um, in going after China is not arguable. 844-942-7866 if you'd like to join in with your comments or questions 844-942-7866 or if you'd like send us a comment via twitter at biz radio 111 or my twitter account which is at dan loney 21 so jock from from the from the side of china here obviously uh, china is at least in the short term they are responding to moves being made by by president trump and the approach mindset i guess by china is to a degree they do not want to they want to be able to respond to anything that the u.s might be doing and they want to be seen as i guess a a strong country and not being seen that the that they're being walked over right i think that's very much the mentality and yeah there's they've got sort of two different reasons to do this one of which is the way one would ordinarily approach this kind of of threat of a trade war which is you want to say you know well you hit me i'm going to hit you back uh, and indeed, in one of the wittier remarks out of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs in many years, they said, uh, as the old Chinese saying goes, it's only polite to reciprocate, right? So once you get this announcement of tariffs on the U.S. side, uh, China really had it queued up. They were set to do a tit-for-tat, uh, $50 billion, uh, the same amount, although, of course, that's a much smaller slice of uh, of uh, of U.S. imports from China, of, of the, the 50 billion is you know, one sixth of what China exports to the U.S. It's one third of what the U.S. exports to China. So there's a little bit of an asymmetry, but they did want to make that point. But there are also domestic political concerns. I mean, Xi Jinping and the current leadership are concerned to show that they're sticking up for Chinese economic interests and that they're basically a tough actor internationally. Well, and, and how much does this impact what uh, China has seen in terms of their growth over the last uh, several years, which we've talked again with you on the show uh, of variety of times about yeah well and that that impact is not huge at least at this point the 50 billion dollars is just a not a you know it's not a complete blockage of that trade it's tariffs on that amount of trade that's a drop in the bucket in either the chinese economy or the u.s economy the the fear is of the retaliation the escalation the disruption of global supply chains it's the nightmare scenario down the road it's not anything that that will be affected in any direct way by the tariffs we're talking about now, which, again, of course, themselves may not be enforced. There is uh, some hope and some expectation that these are bargaining ships, that these are opening uh, salvos in a negotiation. And I think much of the concern here is we are not sure that negotiation is going to play out in the way one would hope because of the erratic nature and the rather hardline positions of uh, some some on the on the U.S. side, Matt. Uh, of all of the items that that seemingly are in the in the the new level of tariffs going from the U.S. to China, are there one or two that seemingly would be companies that would would obviously want to come out and say, "Hey, listen, we are not in acceptance of this. We need to we need to try and move forward so that we can uh, not have to deal with this extraordinary tariff on our on our particular item." Well, yeah, they they all will. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the tariffs, um, the sector that's hit to the greatest extent is U.S. agriculture. Um, we expected that. Um, I think everyone will come out uh, and make public statements and issue press releases. But if I could go back to the last question yep. just for a moment, yep. I think it's very important to understand that when a country retaliates through the WTO process, there is not this 
downward spiral of retaliation against retaliation against retaliation. For 70 years, we've had the WTO and its predecessor, the GATT. And for 70 years, we've had countries taking other countries to court, if you will, in Geneva in this process I described a little bit earlier. Um, before the WTO, the process didn't work quite as well as it does now, but we've had this for 70 years. And we've never seen a digression into a trade war um, or even just simply a retaliation against a retaliation if a country seeks to retaliate through the WTO process. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is because it slows everything down so everyone can take a breath. Um, another reason is because the actual retaliation itself is not imminent. It takes years to get it. Another reason is because the complaining country gets to prove their case in open court. So the, the losing country doesn't feel the political need to retaliate because everyone, including their own constituency, sees that they're breaking the rules because the case is laid out and, and, and an impartial tribunal makes a finding. Uh, and so you don't have this whole downward spiral into a trade war is, is only a threat. And it's a real threat because Trump has has implied, though he hasn't actually said it, that he's not going to go through the WTO process. He's just going to retaliate, uh, you know, in the next few months. And, and that's the thing that makes the U.S. retaliation, a violation of WTO rules back to China. And that's the thing that compels China to then retaliate against our retaliation. And no president has done this before. But the expectation, or at least the hope is, is that uh, this, all of this conjecture and, uh, and these ideas of, of tariffs being brought forward will, they hope, as I said, bring, every, bring both sides to the table so we can, uh, can, this can be worked out. Correct, Matt? Yeah, both sides are at the table right now, yeah. as we said before, and, and we do hope they'll work it out, and they might. Um, but, you know, there's, there's also a possibility that they won't. Um, and, you know, you have to remember, well, I don't want to go too far down a road that will take too many minutes to explain, but China and the leadership in China is not the same as the leadership in Mexico or Canada or South Korea. Um, those are the four tr countries that Trump has gone after like a, like a bull in a China shop and a bully. Uh, and the South Koreans gave Trump nothing when he demanded a renegotiation of our, our free trade agreement with them. But they gave him just a little bit of face saving, and he grabbed that and declared victory a couple of weeks ago. And Mexico and China, their governments are giving – excuse me, Mexico and Canada, their governments are giving Trump just a little bit of face saving and a couple of other concessions and an after renegotiation, just tiny stuff. But they benefit a little bit from that. And in the package, they're also going to give Trump some face saving. And that's how that's going to get resolved. It's not clear that the Chinese government will see it as in China's interest to give Trump a few face-saving concessions and then shake hands and settle on this. For one thing, Xi isn't looking at being in office for a few more years. He's been looking at being in office for decades. For another thing, he doesn't have to answer to constituencies the way the leaderships of these democratic countries do. And he might just say that this is an opportunity for him to establish a precedent that he will not be bullied. And he might, it's possible he'll give Trump nothing. In which case, Trump, yet again, thinking he was putting his adversary in a corner, has put himself in a corner. That could happen also, less than 50-50 likely for sure, but that's a risk. Jacques, you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think that is certainly uh, among the possibilities. I mean, China also does have the option of giving a small face-saving concession, and that's what we saw in this first round after the Mar-a-Lago meeting, where China you know, did a couple of, we're going to buy some more stuff, and and China's made those offers again in this round to up its export, up its imports of certain selected American uh, commodities. Now, th this would not be enough 
uh, to address the trade deficit in any meaningful way, uh, and it would not uh, address the underlying concerns about intellectual property. But China certainly has the capacity and has shown the will to offer face-saving concessions that allow Trump to declare some victory. But on major issues, you know, I don't think they're terribly inclined to give. Uh, China does have a sense of itself, and Xi Jinping certainly has a sense of himself as a peer or near-peer leader who will not be bullied and pushed around. Uh, and some of what's on the table here are things that are very important to China. Uh, China has this Made in China 2025 agenda, which is about moving forward in IP, cutting-edge uh, industries, and that's part of what's driven some of the things that the U.S. is, is complaining about. They're not, they're not going to back down on, on the really major things without something more of a fight. The other thing that's going on here is that the way Trump has behaved uh, has done a couple of things. It's made it hard to make policy anywhere. The Chinese are actually somewhat frustrated by the lack of a clear wish list or demand list from, from Washington. They're getting different signals from different parts of the Trump administration and over time uh, from the administration as a whole. It seems to fluctuate and, and flit about a bit, so they don't know quite what to engage. And secondly, this whole Trump approach to the WTO, to multilateral trade agreements and so on, has allowed China to grasp the mantle of being the protector of an open international trading system. And you know, there's, there's a bit of rich irony in some of that. Uh, but as a, a matter of China's positioning itself as the responsible international power, Trump has been a huge huh. gift. We are joined on the phone by Jacques Delisle of the University of Pennsylvania, Matt Gold of Fordham University. Again, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're talking about the potential of tariffs back and forth between the United States and China. Again, 844-942-7866 is the number to join in. Matt, I think with, with a lot of the people that are in the midst of, of this back and forth politically, uh, whether you are somebody that supports the president or does not support the president, when he comes out and makes some of the statements that he has made, like when he uh, came out the other day and said, we are working basically with a $500 billion a year trade deficit with China, that's something that, that draws the attention of a lot of people. For those people that really don't know the guts of it, take us into it. And you mentioned that sometimes a little bit of a trade deficit is not always the worst thing. Take us inside. Is that $500 billion number that he mentioned correct? And what is the impact or not and no impact of, of having something like that? Um, first of all, uh, in terms of the numbers being correct, uh, Trump is very frequently talks about our trade balance and just trade of goods. Okay. Uh, and, and you need to be talking about combined trade goods and services or, or the number doesn't have the significance he suggests it has. Right. We, te we tend to run balances in trading goods and run surpluses in trading services or at least do a lot better in services, and you need the combined number. Um, besides that, he doesn't do too much um, misrepresentation of, of trade balance. He did once with Canada, just but besides one comment he made with respect to Canada a few weeks ago, he's really just played this game with isolating the goods deficit, cherry-picking that. Um, but in terms of um, trade, uh, the meaning of it all, I mean, th this, of course, is a comparison to the, to the value of the goods we're exporting to that country versus the value of the goods they're exporting to the United States. And first of all, importing you know, inexpensive goods from China, and lots of them have many advantages to our economy. Our consumers get to buy lots of quality consumer goods at lower prices, which is helpful to our workers along with everybody else, um, and arguably helpful to our workers more so than some other segments of our society. Um, second of all, our manufacturers get to buy 
uh, inexpensive material inputs to their manufacturing processes, which makes it less expensive for them to manufacture and then makes our manufacturers more competitive uh, with their foreign competitors on markets everywhere in the world um, because their foreign competitors might not be getting the same cheap goods. So uh, cheap inputs to their process. So at the end of the day, um, there are some, those are some of the advantages to, to importing large amounts of, of inexpensive goods uh, from any country, including China. Um, third of all is what actually drives a deficit. And um, things like saving, savings rates, how much people save versus spend, have a big impact, as do um, exchange rates and interest rates. Um, and that's whole, what, the biggest set of impacts. The, the second biggest set of impacts is what goods and services are you producing? If you're the country that makes the iPhone or you're the country that makes, you know, the BMW 3 Series, um, you know, the car everybody wants or the, um, the PDA everybody wants, if you, you're making the goods and services everybody wants, that's going to be the second biggest category of driver of, of whether, you're, you know, whether everyone's buying your goods more or whether you're buying everybody else's goods more. And, and really, trade agreements and how they're written have a much smaller impact uh, in, in relation. So the ability of a U.S. president to just fix that problem through trade arrangements is, is very, very limited. And the whole president having that whole conversation is, almost makes no sense. Well, and going back to the piece you were saying a second ago about manufacturing, uh, obviously, the, the, when you think about manufacturing here in the U.S., that has kind of gone down over the last uh, couple of decades, uh, even though we've seen with the monthly jobs reports a tick up in manufacturing, a very slight one uh, over the last couple of months. You would think that being able to acquire those goods uh, for companies here in the U.S. would have a huge advantage when you're talking about an economy that, even though we're a decade off of a recession is still to a degree you know building itself back up yeah it is and and i don't want to suggest by the way that there's no value in separating the goods and the services deficit there, right there is a little value but it, you don't just take the goods number and throw it at america and pretend that's the trade balance you, you to be fair um you know the services industries tend to be in the coasts, and, and yeah. the, the goods industries, together with agriculture, tend to be in the center of the country. And there is something to be said for the fact that, hey, we can't just look at our overall trade balance. We also have to look um, at the goods balance uh, as, as uh, compared to the services because we need to make sure that every part of America is – you know, is being brought with us into the, the global economy uh, as well as possible, and, and uh, no parts of America are being left out. 844-942-7866 is the number with your comments or questions. So, Jacques, what has been the reaction through all of this process uh, of some of the other countries over uh, in Asia, uh, South Korea, Japan, with what has been going on back and forth between the U.S. and China the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of the, well, we've already been see, seeing some of this targeted at us. The U.S.-Korea free trade agreement was one of the things Trump uh, first went after. But for people in those uh, countries and the sort of policy communities and uh, in the economic, foreign economic policy communities in particular, there's this uh, concern about the U.S. walking away from supporting uh, the WTO-centered uh, post-war economic order, which has been a, you know, a sort of great accomplishment internationally and has been something the U.S. has been closely identified with. This is the latest step in what's seen as a striking and troubling a Trump abandonment of that. There's also a fair amount of head-scratching uh, because some of the concerns the U.S. has about Chinese behavior are shared by Japan and Korea and others in the region, and in some ways they're even more concerned because they are more economically dependent on relations with China uh, than the U.S. is. 
Uh, so there's the perplexity of why uh, the Trump administration has undercut uh, the ability to cooperate with other countries in the region that share a lot of U.S. concerns. Instead, it's, he's been antagonizing those whose support and cooperation would be quite useful and indeed arguably necessary for pursuing some of the goals uh, that the U.S. is ostensibly pursuing. Great having you both back with us again for your information. Thank you, Jacques. Thank you, Matt. All the best. Thank you. Always a pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.